Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, I'm very happy to welcome today's guest, Paul Larson. And uh, Paul, you, you may not be a super household name unless you are a coach or you know fairly plugged into the uh, sports science, endurance science community. But uh, as it turns out, Paul has his fingers in a lot of different areas of that uh, fairly broad field. So rather than me going through them and enumerating them, I'm going to ask Paul to do it. Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Michael. Yeah, great, great to be here. Um. So yeah, I guess, uh, where do I kind of start? So maybe my background is, I'll, I'll kind of start. So I, I come as an athlete, failed athlete that from Vancouver that, you know, originally wanted to become like a, a Dave Scott, Ironman guy. And because I failed that, I got into sports science, went to UBC <laughs> and then I got a master's and bachelor's there. And, and this, particularly, I studied the sport of Ironman triathlon. It's always been my passion. And then I got a scholarship to the University of Queensland in Australia. I did three years of uh, three years of a PhD there. Got employed. Did a lot of work as a professor. Um, and then I got I did a lot of work with the Australian Institute of Sport for about six years. Cool. And specifically areas of like heat. And my PhD was on high intensity interval training. And then a lot of that work got me the cut or caught the interest of the New Zealand uh, Olympic program who were building basically a, you know, a sports Institute type system in New Zealand. And I, I got, uh, I got to lead their physiology team in alongside a joint adjunct professor role at AUT. And it was all about innovation ultimately there. And we did projects with Dan Plews and Martin Bichette on uh, heart rate variability and its application. And uh, I think, uh, again, I really, I really got into the sort of the, the coaching aspect. And I really fell in love with coaching. And that kind of brings me now to, I married a gal from Revelstoke, British Columbia, where I'm at now. And I've been here for the last two and a half years. And really now I just use all the tools at our disposal, like training peaks, and you know hrv for training and garments and power meters and all that stuff to to do all of my work from from my home in revelstoke and uh just I, I online coach ultimately and live the good life skiing skiing the mountains of revelstoke while um <laughs> while doing that job so that's a bit of a short version of the last 20 30 years for me as a failed athlete uh, become a coach and and professor and technologist i guess I think we could all take a lesson from that, spend 20 to 30 years in school, uh, and then <laughs> retire to the mountains in British Columbia and ski and coach. So <laughs> it wasn't the plan, but it just kind of happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a bad way to turn out. <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah. And I think my first introduction to your work actually was in the realm of heat transfer. It was some of the papers that you would put out on cooling uh, with slushy drinks with the New Zealand triathlon team. So that's, I think... Yeah, the first time I'd heard your name and then uh, talking to Michael, he had read your book. Um, so it sounds like there's a lot of common ground here. And then just getting to know you since then, it's been it's been really interesting having a couple chats here and there. So I think there's a lot and a lot of different topics that you can really help out with and, and educate people on. So it's fantastic to have you on the show. Cheers. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, great. Great to be here. And I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. We, we share so many common interests. Yeah, and uh, probably without, uh, uh, well, certainly without you knowing it, but uh, you've uh, you've been, if not mentioned by name on the podcast, certainly your studies have been uh, have been cited in the past, uh, specifically the ones on, that Andrew mentioned on uh, uh, the the role of slushy drinks and the the actual thermal exchange that goes on there and the you know the massive effect that can be gained. We keep coming back to that whenever we talk about uh, training in the heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely i think yeah and as andrew and i spoke on and when we were in both in kona together we were saying just how it's it's such an underutilized um advantage that um yeah there, there's a lot of a lot of potential there for uh you know i guess innovation and whatnot and and just a wider spread of understanding of the the, the benefits and the, and the role of heat transfer in 
in benefiting your performance and how to how to maximize that, how to optimize that. Cool. But so there's clearly so much fodder for a conversation here. Um, you know, you've you've identified three topics that, off the top of my head, can be excellent. Uh, you know, episodes in their own in their own right. Um, the one that we're going to do today is uh, uh, hit high intensity interval training. But uh, as we talked a little bit offline before we started, we'd love to have you back on for chats about uh, heat transfer and thermoregulation as well as you know, heart rate variability. I think those, yeah, those are clearly standalone episodes. Excellent. Cool. Well, we'll just, yeah, let's focus on hit. I will fight every instinct in my body to ask you transfer <laughs> questions. <laughs> it's going to be hard, Andrew. Yeah. Good luck. Andrew, we'll give you an episode soon. Okay. Um, so uh, let, let me give you a little bit of background, um, listeners. Uh, so high intensity interval training, which I'll let Paul introduce, but uh, my I've heard I'd heard of Paul before through HRV for training, which I use daily. Um, but I really got a look into his work after reading his book with uh, Martin Bouchet, um, Hit Science. And a lot of my questions today are going to be coming from that uh, that piece of work. And um, if you're if I'm coaching you, you've like it or not, you've been exposed to some of what uh, some of what Paul and Martin have come up with and some of the best practices that they've identified. Uh, and you've seen some of the workouts that they they recommend in your own training peak feed. So some of this conversation, at least for the uh, uh, the men and women that I coach, will be at least somewhat familiar. And I think the next uh, logical step would be a definition of what high intensity interval training is and what it isn't. Paul? So yeah, it's a great place to start. So the definition, I guess, of high intensity interval training is a period of exercise really that is performed in your red zone. So, you know, and, and that red zone is sort of the simple description of it, but it's, it's, uh, it's ultimately your anaerobic threshold, your lactate, your lactate threshold. It's where, you know, it's an unsustainable exercise. So, yeah, you've got to be above this. You know, another another term we've used for used sometimes is the critical velocity or the critical power. If you're a cyclist out there, and um, if you're if you're a swimmer, it's it's your um, critical swim speed. But like that is the demarcation point or limit for where the exercise intensity sits. So it's hit by definition needs to be performed above that intensity for various different durations. And of course, uh, the classic uh, aspect of HIT is that it is, these are these bouts are repeated, right? So it's like the, the rest or recovery aspect in there is also very important. And because that enables the, the system to, I guess, ultimately recharge and for you to, to repeat that again, dig into your fast twitch or your, um, your larger motor units. And you type two fibers and I guess by, by doing that, or that's, that's one of the key adaptations. And by doing that, you're ultimately making them a little bit more fatigue resistance. Um, and then I guess the other, the other big thing that really turns on is your, is, is your cardiac output and your, and your stroke volume. So these are the other, those are really the two key adaptations that you're getting more so than if you were just going to perform like a steady state kind of exercise. So I think that that's probably what it is. And you asked another maybe important point on what it isn't. And I think this gets mixed up a lot. It's not, you know, it's not three, not zone three A or three B efforts. So it's not uh, moderate intensity exercise. It's performed, you know, like I, I would call these Ironman efforts, Ironman pace efforts, or even 70.3 type efforts. It's not, it's not heavy work that's in that aspect, which is mostly you know, pretty, pretty sustainable. It should be sustainable, right? Cause you're doing it for, uh, four or, you know, two hours in a, in a 70.3 or four, you know, four hours in an Ironman kind of thing. It's it, the, the demarcation point for an exercise of hit is that, um, is that critical velocity or critical speed? So it's got to be above that. It's it's kind of unsustainable, right? Is there an upper limit? So you define a lower limit with uh, critical power, critical speed. Is there an upper limit? No, the upper limit is maximal sprinting speed or peak power output. So five, you know, it uh, five seconds all all out, right? So it's it's absolute 
that's that's the upper limit okay so it's, it's it really sort of spans and we've got like if you got an excellent social media page with and there's so much information on that like even if you don't want to go out and buy the book or the course uh you know go to hit science maybe like the twitter page i think is probably the best and like so much of this stuff is even even just on that like if you if you want to like you know i'm looking at one of the tweets here and it's you know it really shows the range of high intensity um i guess efforts and the, the, you know the different types that you can have all the all various different formats short intervals long intervals repeated sprint training sprint interval training and small sided games if we want to look at the cascade of all the various different formats or what we like to call weapons uh and and they are yeah but they're all above the critical velocity critical speed maximal lactate steady state functional threshold power this is the mark right so yeah a lot of people will know your know their ftp and they'll be saying oh okay it's got to be above that got to be above my ftp and if you're if you're talking about intervals there's obviously an in between uh that's used for recovery. So how does a, a true hit workout differentiate itself from something like an over under where you're doing maybe five or 10% above threshold and then five or 10% below? Like, do you have guidelines for where you would consider it to be moving away from the over under style workout? Um, I mean, I think if you're doing an over under, that's like, you just, um, you know, like that workout. Cause you kind of like, it, it is, yeah, I guess that would be technically hit, right? Because you are just going, uh, you know, into, or, you know, you're going over your critical velocity or FTP, and then you're coming back down and, but you're, you know, you're really slowing because you're just below it. You're, you know, if we want to, you know, call it W prime or whatever the recovery kind of kinetics that are going on there, where because the intensity is, kind of still so, you know, relatively high. It's a very slow recovery aspect in the under section. So, but that is, yeah, that would be a, a hit session by definition. But it, it, even though you're just kind of hovering around the, you know, your FTP. Hmm. So it seems like it's a very broad definition, actually. Um, broader than I than I'd realized. I thought there was actually an upper ceiling. And uh, I'll, I'll mention that in a, in a further question. Um, but uh, if we're looking at, if we can narrow the focus down a little bit into, um, you know, developing our aerobic capacity, you know, that power, let's say on the bike or pace for running at, uh, at VO2 max. Is there what? What do you think? How do you think about des- when designing workouts to um, to improve that aerobic capacity? And what are your sort of what are the metrics you're looking at, and whether or not you're basing that workout as a percent of, let's say, critical power or critical pace or uh, some other physiological metric? What do you think about that? Yeah. So I, okay. So if I understand the question right, we're we're going to try and develop our VO two max. Is that right? And what are the best Correct. intervals for for doing that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So everyone knows, or what? Not everyone. Let's just make sure everyone knows the VO two max. It stands for your maximum volume of oxygen uptake, and the, and we're talking here about the maximum ability of the cardiovascular system to uptake oxygen and to transport it to the working muscles and for it to be utilized. And it's a key hallmark marker of success. It's one of probably three key markers for any endurance athlete. Um, the other is, of course, economy and threshold right so and so often we um yeah we want to we want to enhance the the vo2 max and some of the weapon or the best weapons that we can use are those that actually uh you know elicit vo2 max lo and behold the principle of specificity holds quite true there right so and those those ones mostly are your short intervals and your long intervals and these ones kind of hover right around the power or speed that's associated with with the vo2 max cool all right so if we're talking short intervals and an example of a short interval might be a 30 on 30 off right 30 seconds on 30 seconds off repeat a series of those and then take a pause and then do that again that's a that's a great you know it's a great workout for um for eliciting this vo2 response it won't happen in the very first 30 seconds but lo you know lo and behold when you repeat this that you'll you'll start to see the uh, the VO two rise until it reaches VO two max, and 
yeah, this is a, uh, you know, it's sitting around between 100 and 120% of the VO2 max power output or running speed, depending on what context that we're kind of in. So that's one of the ones. And the other one that's, that's good is, is the long intervals. People are, these are classically actually even called VO2 max intervals. So I'm, you know, I'm going to go do VO2 max intervals today. Yep. And, you know, these might be, you know, two on, two off, uh, you know, a series of two on, two offs right at VO2 max power running speed. Or they might, you know, three on, three on, two off, or you know, four on, three off. Um, you know, the, these types of intervals, right? And these ones are the, the hallmark of these ones. I think are um, the, you'll really notice the respiratory rate quite elevated in, in individuals, right? You'll you'll hear it right there. <sighs> like it's 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 quite. That's the classic hallmark. You know, someone's at VO two max when they are doing when they're doing that. So. Um, yeah, and and this type of training, uh, as much as it can also be a little bit of a bomb and beat you up, it is uh, done in the right dosage. It's it's a very effective means, if repeated, of eliciting further enhancements in VO2 max. So lo and behold, you can you know do a little bit more the next time and a little bit more the next time. Uh, but getting that dosage right is really important. So uh, because there's a lot of a lot of pitfalls, we can talk talk about those later but does that answer most of that question there yeah it definitely does it and then it also sets up a, a couple of follow-ups which is kind of i suppose what we want <laughs> um so you mentioned uh designing these workouts and this was kind of a leading question on my end uh designing these workouts right around um you know let's just stick to cycling but the you know it works for swimming and running as well but that uh, power of VO2 max up to, you mentioned even up to 120% of that power of VO2 max, which would be uh, oh, quite, a, quite a doozy of a session, I'm sure. Um, so the big question then is, if, you're, if you can only really, and this is my firm belief, if you can only really estimate VO2 max from critical power or FTP, uh, is there a, a reliable um, field test for it? for cycling and then critical, uh, or, and then for running where we're talking about pace of VO2 max. Sure. So let's start with cycling, I guess. And we did a really cool study, uh, with Mark Quad from the Australian Institute of Sport, Dave Martin. Um, and the, we, I guess it was with the Australian cycling team. We, we had that same sort of question, uh, in the, in the late two thousands. And that's when, you know, power meters are becoming more, more accepted and, and used. And, um, you know, I think we really kind of came up with the, the field, the best field test was almost your four minute, um, maximum mean power output. So even if you, um, if you even those that are using training peaks, they could actually go to their metrics sort of section, right? The, um, I'll just do it like, like the task bar, they go to their dashboard, and they can actually find, I think, actually, I think they only have, um, they'll need to use WKO, you know, four or five to actually look at the, um, the four minute. I think you've got your five minute maximum mean power output on that one though. That's a really good test. If, if you've got a series of data for a long time, you could actually look at what your, um, your MMP maximum mean power output is, uh, four or five minutes. Right. So yeah, four doesn't come up. I got two and I got, yeah, five. you're right. It's, it's five minutes on training peaks. I'm looking at, yeah, <laughs> I'm so looking that, at but that's going to yeah. be pretty darn close. Right. So right. Yeah. That's pretty close to your, your VO two max power output. And it's a, yeah. So you could, you know, we could target kind of within that, within that range. And, but that, you know, and that would be a, a yeah, a good little, little spot. It wouldn't actually be too far off too. If you even use the, the running speed to, I think, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, no, I mean, in theory, it should be very, very similar for the running speed too. Uh, again, if you yeah, I've heard, I've heard five minutes in the past yeah. for yeah. running. Yeah. So yeah. That it's, it's going to be around that speed and around, around that speed or around that power. And, and again, you can, you know, you might, you might hear a bit of, uh, variableness in my in my decisions there and that's and that's because ultimately it really is and that's I'm, I'm so i'm really big in the belief that you you need to there's there's really got to be a good element of feel to the athlete and you know it's it is what i really like my athletes using the technology where they know their heart rate they know their power they know their speed and they know the feel that should be 
um, that all of those sessions are kind of associated with. And um, you're almost uh, feel feel almost should be first in my 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 view, and then the the speed and the speed power or and heart rate kind of come come last after that. So um, hmm. yeah, that's 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 me with my sort of coaching hat on. But that's where that's where the data should should kind of sit. There's one thing for me that's personally very satisfying, uh, just completing one of these intervals where you know you're pushing right to the limit at that four or five minute, um, that time duration. So doing like one kilometer, just over one kilometer intervals for the run, uh, something like that, just squeaking through to the, the end of that interval and pushing yourself to that limit is just so psychologically satisfying. And honestly, the um, the feeling that comes from that gives me more confidence in the next interval, knowing that you made it through it. It just builds you up and gives you almost some psychological momentum, I find. So I think there's a lot of benefit just in that side of things alone. Yeah, 100%. And again, with my physiology hat on, uh, yeah, you know, this really strong, you know, dopamine responses and, you know, all the various different feel good hormones, they come to, they come to play to tell you, you know, give you sort of build your, build up your confidence for that whole thing and make you feel good about the, about the efforts. And yeah, one, 100%. So mind, body come together. <laughs> nice. Uh, I'm going to ask you to switch hats again and put that coaching hat back on uh, to answer this following question, Paul. Um, and that is, uh, in my experience, uh, in using short and long um, hit formats, uh, the ones that you just d- defined maybe five minutes ago, um, I noticed there's a, a lot higher tolerance and compliance for the the hit short format, even if I stretch the the set duration, let's say if we're using 3030s, even if I give people, you know, make them do up to 20 of them in a row, um, the tolerance is fairly high, considerably higher than even, you know, the the shorter version of the hit long, like a two on, two off. Never mind if we go to three on or longer, then we're starting to really, um, I think, amp up the perceived exertion so uh in your coaching experience do you do you see that and uh, do do you know um or do you have a guess at what the mechanism behind this is yeah it's a good question good question and the i have i've had this similar debate with my my co-author martin behight and uh you know i i'm kind of of the belief as well like you that that uh, the short interval can certainly be a little bit less taxing, uh, you know, a little bit maybe less neuromuscular demand than the long intervals, which like long intervals are almost by default. We would call these type like type three and type four intervals. Like these are, you know, basically we, we throw a physiological classification in terms of hit types uh, across all the intervals. Uh, and the long intervals hit these, uh, the physiological systems of the, the blood lactate and the neuromuscular strain, in addition to the, the aerobic demand, a lot more so often than the short intervals, whereas you can, the short intervals are a little bit more, they can be tailored to be a little bit you know, less stressful. So we would call the short intervals, we can do type ones and type twos ultimately with the short interval where we can remove a little bit of the lactate strain and remove a little bit of the neuromuscular or musculoskeletal strain and make these a little bit more sustainable, you know, with that ability to repeat the next day. But as Martin always likes to remind me, you certainly can make a short interval uh, hit session just as stressful, if not more than a long interval session, you know, but he comes from the football standpoint. Okay. And kind of having like, uh, you know, he's comes from the team, team sport context. And, you know, again, he's, he's, he's assured me that you certainly can do short intervals that can be even more stressful than a, than a long interval kind of thing. But we're, yeah, we, we sort of put our, our endurance hats on mostly. So I would say mostly, mostly you're, you're spot on and, but uh, not, not always. And in terms of the metabolic pathways there, with the short intervals, are you getting more of a contribution of the creatine phosphate uh, just to supply that initial energy or does that replenish? I don't know the time scales that it would take to kind of replenish your stores there, um, but presumably the first interval, you're getting a lot of contribution from that and after that it would taper away. Um, but does that play a major role in the very short, like the 30 on 30 off type intervals? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. I think 
Um, it, it does come in a little bit. Uh, you know, I'd have to pull up my graph. I think that the big one that we that's underappreciated is actually the myoglobin response. So it's it's really the myoglobin that's the big player within the short interval because it winds up uh, getting so in the pause period. So so hold on, back up a sec. So myoglobin is the hemoglobin of muscle, right? So it saturates the muscle with oxygen and, and, and it's, uh, the immediate source of aerobic energy, you know, when you start up. So, you know, we'll all, we'll all know that when we start up with our, uh, you know, any sort of exercise, you know, even though we might be contracting quite vigorously, we're, you know, we don't start breathing until a little bit later on. So, right. and it's, it's, it's quite a quick response. So it doesn't, uh, doesn't take too long for the, for the myoglobin to be resaturated with oxygen and you know it's it really gets uh, refilled within 10 to 20 seconds kind of thing hmm. so you can imagine in a 30 30 um sequence you can and this is always a really cool you do these yourself it's, it's quite a quite a neat response because you can be sitting there in a passive state in the uh in the 30 30 and you're you're you can just listen to your cardiovascular system working its tail off right like you're still breathing really heavy and you're your, you can actually feel your heart contracting really hard in your, um, in your, in your, in your chest. And yeah, so what's going on in this situation is that you are resaturating the bed of muscle in your, in your legs and, and it's the myoglobin is getting resaturated so that then in, you know, when you commence again, the, the next, um, 30, 30 second sequence, you're resaturating that or you're, um, you're, you're going back into the aerobic system. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, you, you actually make it one, you, you wind up making it actually quite aerobic. Um, you know, I don't think it's really phosphocreatine. That's, it's a player in that for sure, but it's not as big a player to my understanding as the, the myoglobin plays in, in that, um, in that sequence. And, and what, what, what that winds up doing, uh, you know, if the pause, uh, ratio is correct is it winds up lowering the blood lactate response, which can be a really, really good thing to Michael's point originally when, you know, can we, can we, you know, back these up a little bit, a little bit more because in that's, you know, if, if we actually look at, um, so we've done kind of a bit of a meta meta analysis in our, in our hit science book. And we've actually, like we, we show that you, you can actually be at VO two max in a short interval sequence but with a very low level of blood lactate. So you can actually be at VO2 max, but your blood lactate is, is sitting around four millimoles. And um, that's awesome. Yeah, which is incredible, right? Because like that's, that's super low, right? Like four millimoles is like threshold, yeah. like just threshold level. But you can, you can repeat a, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, maybe a 20 second on, 20 second off sequence and you can be at VO2 max. Quite remarkable. So you're you got the cardiorespiratory stuff going on, but low levels of uh, anaerobic glycolytic activity um, and low levels of lactate. So I'm all over the place on that one. But yeah, <laughs> talking a lot about the short interval. I think that's a great answer because also you know your your explanation with the myoglobin cycling makes a ton of sense in the way that you know I personally experience these intervals and and from my understanding and the fact that you can keep um, lactate so low is a is a huge win and I know in your book you say that this I think it was the type one interval uh, hit short doesn't have a, a high glycolytic response and for those of us who are let's say you know long course triathletes or ultra endurance runners. Um, suppressing that glycolytic, you know, fitness, the the glycolytic capacity is for most of us a win because, you know, you, you don't want, you want that, you know, you want your, uh, your long, slow metabolism to be powered primarily by fat. And we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast. So you don't necessarily want to develop a glycolytic engine. And this has always been the, for me in the past has been the double-edged sword of, of, uh, you know, VO2 max development work is that you have you almost can't help but develop the glycolytic um, component of the metabolism at the same time as you're working on the aerobic component, um, and you know, hit short might be the way to do it. After after hearing your explanation now, yeah, yeah, I agree. I think I, I mean, in my own practice as a coach, I tend to use the short interval a lot more than the long interview, interval because of that exact, yeah, exact reason. I, you know, like you're 
is a little bit more of a glycolytic lactate spillout that can affect subsequent days training. It's not to say I don't use it. I, w- I will certainly use it a little bit in, a, in the build up to a, um, an event, but um, I think in terms of the, mo- the one that's a little bit more sustainable, it's yeah, again, for the reasons we just spoke of short interval is, is definitely a, uh, a key tool in the toolbox that I like to come out. Cool. No, it makes a lot of sense. So because we touched on it there, um, long, slow distance workouts, they're another popular way of just uh, addressing the the demands of races like Ironman. Um, so when when you're looking at designing a workout plan, a lot of coaches will prefer to give a lot of these long, slow workouts just to force that adaptation. So how would, uh, in terms of overall benefit and just the time that it, that your body takes to adapt to that higher uh, aerobic output, what would you say is the comparison between HIIT workouts and just doing the, the long constant intervals? Yeah. the So, you know, there's adaptations to be made anytime we create a stress on the system. And yeah, the, the adaptation will just occur in accordance with the stress that we, that we place on that. So there's, you know, there's similar stresses, with, but they are a little bit different. So with a, you know, more of an L1, L2, level one, level two, you know, aerobic recovery type, you know, math type training stimulus, long, slow distance, whatever you want to call it. You know, we're, we're talking about a lower level of uh, muscle recruitment. So our you know, more slow twitch muscle fibers in the pool are going to be engaged and the overall cardiovascular load is going to be lower. We're typically going to do this session for a lot longer. So we're, you know, we're drawing on fat oxidation, fat, you know, fat metabolism of the, and, and specifically in the slow twitch muscle fibers. And then if we, you know, and there's an adaptation that occurs in accordance with that. But then if we want to look at the other end of the spectrum, there are similar adaptations that are going on, but now you've gone and engaged the fast twitch muscle fibers, the, the larger motor units that don't always get recruited if you're only doing slow, slow movements and, and math kind of training. So this is, this is, that's one of the, uh, the advantages, the cardiac, the cardiac output, the ventricular, you know, stretching or, um, yeah, ventricular contraction is, you know, and stroke volume it is kind of going to a whole new level. So again, you're getting something there to a new level that you're not getting the same as if you were just going to do, uh, you know, long, slow distance kind of training. And, you know, my belief and in my experience is that it's really the combination of blending both of these, probably in a polarized type fashion. You might have heard of the polarized training model. Uh, you know, it's uh, purported by Stephen Seeler and many of his colleagues. Um, you know, uh, Arthur Lydiard from the from the seventies, really, and and many others. But this is this whole blend of 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 hit training and the long slow distance training. And finding your finding your um, happy medium between that for the individual is probably the holy grail, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I am. My experience agrees with that. I think you it's not A or B. It has to be A plus B in this context for aerobic development and you know race specificity. Certainly, if you're a long course athlete, you you can't really get away without doing the the long slow distance for a number of reasons. Yeah, I was kind of hoping I'd find a an easy out here, <laughs> but I guess it doesn't exist. <laughs> Well, I just I'll just add to, to to Michael's point. The um, you know, on the the best of both worlds, there was a study. I forget the name of the author, darn. But basically, there was a you know there there was sixty one Ironman triathletes in in the study, and they looked at their fat oxidation rates and their VO two max and and a bunch of other factors, right? And they just did the whole gamut basically. But it came down to if when they, you know, when they did a regression analysis, it was the VO2 max with the fat oxidation rate. You put those two together. That was the, those were the things that were making the best, you know, R, you know, R squared value. So just again, uh, backing up the, the, 
the importance of both to performance. So it was race time in, in the Kona Ironman, I think with 61 athletes. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, it was, it was, you had to have both, both capabilities. If, if you had both capabilities, you were at the pointy end of the race ultimately. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I think my, my understanding of, of metabolism physiology, certainly I agree with that statement. So let's, uh, I do want to touch on, uh, on sprint interval training, which you also, uh, mentioned and actually cover in quite a bit of detail in your book. Uh, so this is not uh, high intensity interval training or maybe a version of, I'll, I'll, I'll let you dissect that one. But, um, in the book, I remember seeing that, you guys say that there's not a huge case to be made for uh, endurance athletes like triathletes doing a ton of uh, sprint interval training. And um, I'm wondering uh, if there is a case to be made for it and uh, who would be the ideal candidates. So that's like four questions in a row. And I apologize. <laughs> I tend to do that. Um, so let's let's just quickly define what sprint interval training is, how it differs, and then maybe how it can be used. Yeah, for sure. So sprint interval training. Well, a lot of, I mean, most of us have probably still heard of this because it's really made the, um, it's made a big appearance in the media. Yes. Yeah. You know, and it was a lot of Martin Gabala's work from, from, uh, McMaster and, and, you know, has, has really led the field in this and really been taken up by the health industry and it's kind of, or, you know, it could be called these Tabata type intervals. It's another mainstream one. And it's, it's, these are, we're talking all out 30 seconds and then kind of wait for, you know, two to two to four minutes. This is what we're talking about for a sprint interval training. Okay. So these are absolutely all out like a Wingate test for anyone that's taken a sports science. Right, good times. Um, we, you know, they make you puke, yeah. right? Like oh, they're <laughs> awful. Absolutely sickening. So they're totally spilling out loads of lactate. And, and yeah, but anyways, these are, I guess the reason why they really made a a big, um, appearance in the, in the mean, in the mainstream is because of the time efficiency of these, because you can do just, you know, five or six of these, uh, these intervals and lo and behold, you'll, you can still make a lot of great adaptations in the mostly in the muscle actually like this you can improve like the sensitivity of the muscle to like glucose for example and and um like your 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 um your muscles wind up be becoming uh, you know almost more insulin sensitive and they yeah they might lower your overall glucose load in the day which is which is very important and and a healthy a healthy thing to have and of course you can do this this workout in in you know, ultimately five or five or 10 minutes of total, total work. Right. So that's, that's, that's the, I guess, an introduction to a sprint interval training. They're certainly used in, um, like in certain sports, they would definitely be used like, like swimming, for example, you, you'd certainly use a lot. So if, if it was like your race is 25, 50, 100, 200 meters, it's going to be pretty important to have aspects of these in the program. Um, if you are a sprint cyclist, right. Uh, or, a you know, a, a sprint kayaker, and these are still classified as endurance sports, right? Like, again, these are bread and butter, uh, sessions that are going to appear during the week. So they're certainly still, still used. Um, and, you know, it might even be used like in the, um, you know, for milers and, and, uh, you know, other type athletes at certain times. So, um, yeah, that's the, that's the sprint interval training. When, when would you use them in, you know, a triathletes workout? Not very often, certainly, but maybe, uh, you would use it like, like you could still potentially use it in, in a couple like swim workouts, right? Like there certainly could be the time if you're, you're working on swim speed, for example, you would be, you could be using this for, you know, um, improving, like start. So let's take an ITU, uh, uh, triathlete yeah. who is struggling to make the, you know, the, the, the 300 meter boy, right. Where it's like the, the race is, is almost even determined, uh, on the, on the first boy. Right. So they, they've got to make that first boy that, that turn because otherwise the, like the, the line split at that, at that point. Right. So there's, there's a context where, the sprint interval training could be very important because if, if we're, if our top speed right off the line, isn't, isn't there, we are going to be, we're, we're off the back and we're not going to be making, you know, um, second or third, first, second or third, um, group on, on the bike. Right. So 
yeah, I think it's it's not used as much, uh, but in in certain contexts across the endurance sport, it's an important tool that we must know exists at least, and and how to use it. Um, sure. What about recruitment? Uh, the benefit of uh, you know neuromuscular recruitment. Yeah, uh, for sure. So that is remember the sprint interval training is the intensity is absolutely all out. So you are you're telling your brain your your brain is telling your muscles to get in, dig as deep as you can and recruit as many motor units as you've possibly got, you, you know, you can give me. Um, so yeah, if, if, you know, maybe in a, in a certain individual where we think that's kind of, um, an issue and like, we're, we're not, we're not getting in where, you know, our, our overall, overall speed, we just can't recruit in there is, and, and we want to try and experiment with that. That could be a great um, tool to kind of try. Let, let's see what is our top capacity. Right. And um, so it might, you know, it might just be some, one of those things that we've, we've lost our way over time and we really want to, um, to work towards trying to, to repair some of those neuromuscular pathways to, um, to dig in there and, and get, those, get those up again. So it could be used potentially in that context as well. Hearing all this, uh, it's funny because I thought I had a good background in things and now I'm just completely in over my head again. So it's it's fantastic information, but it just really highlights how little I know currently. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Like, that's like, I'm, I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm always in that state. <laughs> cool. Cool. Well, again, if anyone's, anyone wants to know more, then we got a whole book and course uh, on hit science. So it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> you can know if, if you like this stuff, you can, you can know it as much as you want. <laughs> There was actually something that we touched on very briefly in just a mention earlier on in the episode, but didn't take time to define really. And that's the, the concept of W prime and just the, uh, I guess, the, the capacity that you have for these, um, these tough pushes during a race. So uh, it might be worth going into some of that instead of just kind of mentioning it briefly and then not, uh, not covering it in full detail. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I'm, this is where I, thank goodness, I collaborate with people that are smarter than me because it's, but they're, you know, they're mathematical construction um, constructs that are modeling ultimately the amount of, you know, glycolytic energy, finite glycolytic energy that sits above that, you know, critical velocity or critical power. Right. So we can, we can say that there, and a lot of people use the term, you know, like matches right like i don't you know it's you've only got so many matches to burn in in a race i've burned all my matches in that in that event so it's often talked about with cyclists and that's ultimately i guess what we're talking about and from an innovation or technology standpoint the mathematicians can put their map their um their brains together and actually look at this from uh you know amount of you know the power that is um performed above that critical velocity critical power and we can you know, we can watch that, that amount kind of coming downwards. And, and again, because we know that there's, there's only a certain amount. So I guess that gives a little bit of a background. Um, and yeah, depending on how you burn that match, you know, if you are, if you want to go all out, you can burn that match extremely quickly and your W prime falls really quick. And, uh, you know, conversely in the, you know, the over under, uh, example that you brought up, Andrew, we, we can burn it a little bit sort of slow. We can burn it super slow and allow it to rise back up in the, um, in the situation where we are doing over unders where we're just above the critical velocity or, or, um, yeah, or, or critical power. So that's, you know, and yeah, and there's some interesting innovations that are out there where they're calculating W prime, to your point, Andrew, on, on the watches, on the Garmin's, on the power meters. And again, through people that are smarter than me, they've said that, um, you know, there, there might be an oversimplification of the calculations and these are just estimates anyways. And, but you know, maybe there's something there and maybe we're going to, um, maybe we're going to be able to, to, you know, with artificial intelligence, et cetera, we're going to be able to get, narrow these down for the individual a little bit more in the future. Yeah, I echo with Paul on this one too. And my, uh, kind of my experience with W prime in the, you know, the modeling that exists currently is that it's not, for me, it wasn't super accurate. Like I could routinely go 
you know, and I would test frequently and it's usually a critical, you know, a two point critical power test to establish W prime, like four minute and 12 minute or something similar. And then the, you know, the W prime I would get from that test would be, I could routinely go into, into the negative, right? So in a, in an interval, especially in a, in a hit short format, I find that I can, uh, I can drain my W prime very quickly and then go, go into the red. So clearly what's happening is that, you know, it's not capturing my body's ability to, to recover it, um, quickly enough, I suspect, because, you know, draining it is pretty straightforward, right? Draining it is, you know, for the, the, the calculus nerds, it's just area under a curve. Um, uh, and for the, the less calculus nerdy inclined, if you think about, if you think about, you have a battery of this, uh, glycolytic power, anytime you're above your critical power, your FTP or your critical pace, uh, you're starting to drain that battery. The more, the, 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 the higher above you are, you know, the, the greater the difference between your critical power and the power you're sitting at, the faster that battery will drain, which is what Paul said about, you know, you can empty that battery very, very quickly at, uh, you know, if you're doing uh, that Wingate test, for example, in 30 seconds and you're ready to puke, you got nothing left. Or if you're just above, yeah, as he said, just above critical power and over under, it drains very slowly. But um, so the draining part of it, I think they've got figured out. And this is just my own pet theory um, based on exactly nothing but my own <laughs> my own musings. But the recovery component, I don't think is there because, like I said, in a, you know, it would be accurate if I did a single interval to exhaustion. It would be quite accurate. But if I did um, hit short like 30 30s, I could do 30 30s for a long time. And then, you know, halfway through the set, my. Uh, my W prime would be negative. And so obviously I'm not dead, <laughs> still moving. So yeah, it still has a ways to go. And kind of like TSS, how it doesn't capture the full uh, spectrum, I guess. But yeah, there, there could be a layer missing mathematically that that accurately describes the kinetics. But um, I think where it would have a lot of value and where I have seen it used is actually with Cycling Canada and the, the Team Pursuit, um, where they've got multiple riders going over thresholds, well, a lot over threshold and then dropping down to a bit over threshold. And for that repeated, um, very specific use case where they're always, you know, they're in a four minute effort, regardless, it's always the same kind of go in fresh, uh, have these kind of boats about the same length. Um, I think that's very useful in that case because it, it would describe the kinetics that you're seeing every time repeatedly. Um, but if you try to generalize it a little bit more, it might lose its value. Yeah, and I, sus- I suspect that Cycling Canada has much better. Da- you know, it's it's always a question of like what what's the quality of your data that you're feeding this model, and so I can guarantee you that Cycling Canada has better data than I have on myself. So <laughs> with their testing, so maybe maybe my uh, you know, where, where W, where the, the W prime model failed for me was just the fact that I didn't give it good enough data that maybe I, you know, sandbagged one of the tests or something. Yeah. And they're, they're basically taking it every single training run that they do. They model this and they compare it and they analyze the data and the the time spent at power. So there's, there's a lot of analytical work that goes into this. So they definitely have a lot more refinement there. And because it's such a narrow window of usage, um, I think they can polish that off to, to a much further extent than, than you're able to just with the, the general application of it. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all kind of guessing a little bit about what's going on in the inside. Right. And, um, and, and yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe even some of this, this discussion that we chatted on before about the, you know, the, the myoglobin and you know how much does that kind of, um, affect, affect these calculations and, and, and those sorts of things, the CP, all these things, what, you know, what's going in that, but that again, in, in, in my experience as well, the, the repletion aspect, um, things seem to go out the window when the, when you're actually looking at the repletion of the W prime after like between boats. So yeah, very, very, uh, different between, between subjects. Yeah, the model that I, I've had more success with, I don't currently use it, but I, I was, was a big fan um, when I was doing slightly different training is Exert's model. Um, I they're, They don't, they have their own proprietary names for all of this stuff and they don't, it's not strictly speaking a W prime model. Um, they, uh, they, well, aside from calling it something different, their model actually behaves differently. Uh, but it, it is predictive of when you've, uh, you know, kind of spilled your last bean and you're, you've got nothing left. And I found that their modeling was more accurate, certainly than W prime was. So if you're, um, if you're interested in seeing what, you know, what it is you're truly capable of physiologically, I found Exert's model to be quite accurate for me. 
Um, again, this talking about W prime or or exert um, for I find for for training, yeah, there's there's some utility if you're doing hit or sit work, but for racing in in our context, unless we're doing draft legal work, we're never above threshold. I mean, even in a sprint triathlon, uh, draft illegal may be up a hill, but primarily it's close to threshold, and it's it's not the limiting factor for us. Isn't going to be as endurance athletes as let's say triathletes or or runners above, you know above 10k we're not we're not reaching that uh we're not depleting w prime well maybe in a 10k you are but um yeah that's there there are other limiting factors so for racing it's a little bit less of a high priority um point to get right i think yeah and i think that's that's absolutely true the only time you might see that that threshold work or the the above threshold work is if you're trying to do a pass in um you know, like especially the pros that aren't allowed to even in draft illegal races uh, for triathlons, they're not allowed to be in the draft zone at all. So you might be pushing above threshold wattage to get by someone for those 20, 25 seconds. Um, so that might equate maybe not to a full spl- full out sprint, but it, it might be well above threshold. And then you have to settle in and recover for a little bit to get uh, to get back down to your, your baseline. Um, but aside from that, I can't see a whole lot of application. Yeah, agree. All right. Well, I think we covered a ton here today. Uh, my mind is definitely spinning and trying to absorb all of this still. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you should have read the book first like I did, Andrew. I know. Next given, time I'll do that. Given you a leg up. <laughs> I'll do my homework next time. <laughs> the fantastic interview and a lot of content there. And I'm going to have to go back and, and re-listen because I know there are a ton of things that uh, I kind of got a first glance at, but I'll need to go back and absorb and and re-listen and reason out. So I think this will be actually a good, uh, a good episode for me to review multiple times. And then check out their social media so that you can, you can get some, they've got some really good visual visuals mm-hmm. of how this works. And I don't know about you, I'm a, I'm very much a visual learner. So be seeing these, uh, all of these concepts explained by us talking about them is one thing, but actually seeing them, um, shown on a, on a page as a graphic, I think is, is much more easier to absorb. All right. Well, with that being said, um, is there anything else that you wanted to add, Paul? Anything that you want to push aside from your book and uh, and the research you're doing currently? You know, not not really. I think uh, you know, hopefully I might be back one day. And but yeah, if, if people want to find out a little bit more about me and what I do, it's uh, you know my my own personal website is paullarson.com, and and you can see all of my different projects that I've that I've got on there. So yeah. Um, and there's a contact page if anyone wants to get in touch on on anything that has piqued their interest in the conversation. That sounds great, Paul. And what we always do is we'll leave um, the links in our show notes. Uh, so anything that you want me to link to, like the course, if it's still available, um, obviously, you know, if you want to push the book on whatever platform, Amazon or something, or your own contact info, just send me those links and I'll put them up in the show notes. Shall do. Cool. And I'm definitely going to be picking up a copy so that I can more intelligently speak about these conversations. So uh, I'm, I'm super excited about learning more, though. It's, uh, it sounds like a fantastic resource. Yeah, without blowing, like legitimately not blowing smoke here, this was the most useful book on training that I've read in the last, easily last three years. So uh, strongly recommended for self-coach athletes who are serious um, and certainly coaches. Yeah, either the course or the book. Thank you for that. That's awesome, Michael. Appreciate it. Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thank you. And as a bit of foreshadowing, uh, we would love to have you back, especially me, for a heat transfer episode. <laughs> and we've hinted at that a couple of times, but uh, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about that more. You, you kept it under wraps for the, almost the, the, entire, the entire podcast. So <laughs> yes, well, I'm bursting at the seams right now. Awesome. That'd be great. So uh, everyone, thank you very much for tuning in as always. And uh, if you do enjoy the show, and I, I believe this episode will have uh, um, hopefully pushed you in that direction and certainly given you some useful, useful things to put into practice with your own training. So please tell your friends, uh, do rate and review us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. 